We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Nine Innings to Success, a Hall of Famer's approach to achieving excellence, the publisher, Triumph Books, the author, Jim Palmer, Please join me as we welcome the Hall of Famer, Jim Palmer, to the club. Thanks so much, Jim. Uh, oh, my pleasure. It's, it's, it's our pleasure. Uh, I was thinking about it. You're actually the third Hall of Famer we've had, but the first pitcher. So you're first in that way. Uh, what other imposters did you have? We had the uh, uh, Ozzy Smith. Oh. Who's kind of an imposter? No, and, no. Uh, <laughs> no he's, he was a gem. And Frank Thomas, who was not in the Hall of Fame when he was here, so uh, they hurt. yeah, uh, another sweet guy. Uh, Big guy. A little, little shorter than me, but yeah. Uh, so I, we have a very knowledgeable crowd as always. So I want to leave plenty of time for them. But uh, my first and maybe only question that I want to just get going with is: uh, I really enjoyed this book. I think this is really going to help a lot of people. And you learn a lot from the authors, I find, uh, sometimes before the book even gets going, in the dedication. And I just want to read your dedication and then... Who did I dedicate it to? <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't forget. Uh, in loving memory of my parents, Mo and Polly Wieson, and my stepfather, Max Palmer. And I know you were talking a little bit about it before, but if you could, whatever you want to say about that. Well, I was born here in uh, New York. I was adopted. Um, my dad was in the uh, dress business. He owned a couple of dress companies over on 1400 Broadway. My mom um, was one of uh, three sisters and three brothers that lived in, in Omaha. Her dad worked for the Union Pacific Railroad, and he passed away when, when they were 40. So. Um, you know, my grandmother raised them, and then my mom came to New York, uh, I would imagine somewhere probably, you know, 41, two, and worked in a little dress shop, met my father, uh, and she really came here to put her youngest brother, Bob, through Juilliard School of Music. The, the rumor, the word is, that he played for Tommy Dorsey's band for a brief time, um, and then they adopted my sister, Bonnie, and uh, 18 months later, me. So we lived up on, um, somebody asked before, you know, where did I live? And, and you know, we lived on Park Avenue. And uh, I don't really know, because I was, you know, one, two, three years old. 1095 is kind of up, but we had a nice, really nice apartment. You know, we had a couple that kind of, they owned uh, uh, George and Ruth. They, they owned a little uh, farm in, in, in uh, New Jersey, across the bridge. and. You know, they, they, they kind of helped out. They lived with us um, sometimes, and then sometimes they had time, time off. So, um, you know, being adopted, um, you know, and then years later I would, and I talk about this in the book, you know, when you're adopted, you, um, and, you're, and you're, you're just being raised, you just, you know, never was an issue. I, I never really thought about being adopted. I think my grandmother told me my dad had heart problems, so we had, built a house in, uh, in Harrison. He couldn't walk stairs, so we built another house in Rye. You know, it was an upstairs, you know, they, like living quarters were made over the garage. Uh, and then I had one bedroom upstairs, which is what I had, uh, because my dad couldn't, you know, he could just couldn't, apparently, I didn't know this, but he couldn't walk upstairs. Um, but it's kind of interesting when, you know, so years later I would do the Sally Jesse Raphael show, and Dave Thomas was on. Um, you know, who, who founded Wendy's, he was adopted. Faith Daniels, who used to do the Good Morning Show on CBS at like six o'clock in the morning. He was like six months pregnant, I mean, beautiful, nice girl. You know, I was telling somebody, I was doing a Monday night game in Boston and she's on and they had an earthquake in Southern California. So she thinks she goes to a news station and it's really some sh uh, jock, you know, shock jock. He's kind of doing his thing and she thinks she's gonna get a journalist, somebody serious. So now let's go to uh, San Bernardino, you know, station RKKK, whatever. Uh, uh, tell us, you know, tell us about the earthquake. 
Well, Faith, you won't believe it. Uh, you know, there's uh, broken glass in downtown Palm Springs. Animals are, and uh, in San Bernardino County, animals are running wild, and so is my ex-fiance. Well, <laughs> and she says, goodbye, chump. And, and they blacked this guy out because this is not what they were doing on the CBS Good Morning News. So now I get to sit next to her on the, jet, the, jelly, the, jet, uh, the Sally Jesse Raphael show. Roger Grimsey was an ABC uh, uh, correspondent. You get to kind of know people in the green room, maybe not like your best friends. He was a harsh guy. And, you know, he was pretty bitter. And maybe that, and again, I didn't really know him. But, you know, it's funny when you do those kind of shows, you never really know where the storyline is going to go. But the storyline about this was, and I, and, and, you know, here I am probably 30 some years old, maybe going into my 40s, is that. Uh, you don't really have to be a biological parent to be a good parent. And I, I knew this because I, you know, I had the greatest parents in the world. So, um, you know, my dad would pass away when I was nine and my mom, you know, being here in New York and living in Manhattan, and even if you lived out in Harrison and, and Rye, I mean, New York, uh, you know, Ernie, of course, he's here, you know, dear friend who, you know, ran the Giants. You were talking about how great it is to, to live in New York because there's neighborhoods and you know people and you do all this. Well, that's what my mother, but because of the memories of my, of my dad, and my name was Wiesen, we moved to California. So my, my adopted father had put Juilliard School of Music, Bob, into the dress business. Loaned him money, had three businesses, so we moved to Whittier, California. Well, Whittier, California in 1955 was pretty rural. That's where from Richard Nixon's from. You know, his brother Don was in the grocery business. He had a he was had the Whirly Bird drive-ins before McDonald's. He's in the restaurant business. So we lasted one year in Whittier, and we moved to Beverly Hills. And uh, like the second year, so I went to sixth, fifth grade in Whittier, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in, in, in Beverly Hills. And my mom was an avid golfer, and she went to Rancho Park one Saturday, and she was with her girlfriend, and she ran into this guy with his, with a, you know, his friend, and they put them together, and you know, his name was Max Palmer, and you know he worked. Uh, he worked at Santa Anita Park at Hollywood Park, kind of ran some of the restaurants and bars. He was a character actor, Playhouse 90, Studio 57. I have the tape somewhere in my box of tapes. He, do you remember the the uh, the, the TV show Gangbusters? I mean, it's, it's, you know, calling all cars, calling all cars. Well, he kills three people in black and white in, in a half an hour, <laughs> and so he played. You know, so this was this was my stepfather. So I, I mean, I was blessed, you know. So, you know, I just kind of, um, kind of morphed into, you know, understanding how important parents were. You know, grew up in New York, um, and kind of the, you know, I ended up being a baseball player. My Jack Eisler, who sold my dad all his piece goods, said your dad never would have let you be a baseball player. He would have wanted you to be in the garment industry. Now he loves sports, likes to bet on sports, but. <laughs> So, you know, we kind of talk about that and your, your upbringing and um, uh, be polite, get a good education so you can make better decisions, um, be nice to people, be polite to people. So, you know, I mean, I guess some of my parenting skills, I got married when I was 18, going away the first time. You know, I, my, my oldest daughter, Jamie, is gonna be 50 in, um, in November. Kelly's gonna be 48 next week. So, you know, the same skills that my parents did, I kind of did. So it's kind of, you know, so I, I figured, you know, people said, why why did you write the book? And I go, well, I'm running out of time. I'm 70. Um, I'm, hopefully I have plenty of time. But I just thought, you know, from parenting, I have my, my third wife, Susan, she's from College Station, Texas. Dad was head of civil engineering, big gun collector, has the gun that killed Billy the Kid and some of the best Western pistols in the history of Western. Uh, lore, and she's smart, she's beautiful, she has an autistic son, so the skills that my parents imparted to me, I can kind of, you know, use with Spencer. So there's just so many stories that I thought that, you know, and I have friends of mine say, you know, you really had an interesting life. You know, forget the baseball part of it, but just being adopted, having good parents, uh, you know, having them teach you values, uh, you know, work at ABC, work with Howard Cosell. There's a lot of stories in the book about that because he was a rather unique individual, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, he called me, I, you know, I'll, I'll kind of tell you a couple of stories, but 
you know, so I worked with Al Michaels and Tim McCarver. I worked with Cosell. I worked with, uh, somebody said today that I loved your movie. And I said, you mean The Naked Gun? I mean, how appropriate for a guy that ended up being a model for 19 years for Jockey to be in a movie. Really, your only movie, The Naked Gun. But uh, I said, yeah, I, yeah, God, I'm a movie star. But, um, you know, and now I think about it as we, you know, I kind of, you know, I'm, my, I have one of these minds that kind of goes everywhere. So I've been doing all these interviews, and yesterday I was with Mitch McConnell, you know, who's the Senate Majority Leader. And of course, he told a story on Squawk Box how he came into politics because he gave up a grand slam, you know, early in his career. And he figured maybe baseball wasn't for him. Well, I never threw a grand slam. So I guess that, because he said, you know, you'd be good in politics. I said, I never threw a grand slam. Uh, I said, that, no interest. So, um, but what I did say to Mitch in the green room was, I said, you know, you already told me that your favorite team is the Nationals. If the pitchers hated the hitters and the hitters hated the pitchers, it'd be like oil and water. Does that sound familiar, what's going on in Washington? I said, how do you ever win the game? And he goes, well, it's about protecting your self-interest. So, you know, so I've kind of segued into that, but the, the book, um, you know, the, the insights, you know, I got to the Orioles when I, you know, I, I signed, I, I could have signed with any team because I was a year before the draft. And again, the parental uh, influence, my mom said, you know, I really like the Orioles. I like their people that represent them. Now they kind of lied. They said he didn't have very good pitching, and they did. But I got to Baltimore. Oh, I, I played one year in the minor leagues for Cal Ripken Sr. Now, we know his son. Cal played, what, 2,632 straight games? In fact, the night he started the streak, streak I was pitching, I think in 1981. I met Cal Ripken when he was four, little, junior. But his dad, just think about, um, you, know, we, you know, we always talk about life lessons, and I think this book has a lot of them. Just think about the dynamics of when you're 18 years old and you go away for the first time. And, you know, so Cal Sr. was my surrogate father. Uh, it's like 39 degrees, opening day in Aberdeen, South Dakota. A great little town in, in South Dakota. Uh, you're making $500, living in a basement, $414.14 to be exact. You're living in a basement. The good thing about living in a basement when it rained, your shoes would float over to the corner so you knew exactly where they were going to be. So uh, you'd go on a road trip, a uh, nine-day road trip, four credit cards, four cell phones. They give you $27, $3 a day meal money. So, you know, the same, same values when you pitch and you need to be industrious or you need to be a good parent. You got you to find out when you're in Winnipeg, Canada, where you can eat for $3 a day. So breakfast was across the street for 85 cents. Uh, dinner, you know, lunch or, you know, before you we went to the ballpark was all you could eat for 89 cents, but they, they keep filling up your water glasses. And then maybe you could afford a peanut butter sandwich or a grilled cheese after. And you know, Coke was only a dime, and so on. So, you know, and then one of the other things, uh, you know, with Cal was when we had the meeting uh, before opening day, uh, he told us about work ethic. And I think the reason the book, I mean, it, it's, it's a baseball book, but it's also a success book, because he said, listen, you never want anybody to outwork you. And kind of went back to what my parents told me. Um, you know, whether I'm a broadcaster or I'm a baseball pitcher or I work, we had one of the guys I was my roommate in A-ball, you know what he did in the offseason? He made uh, steering wheels for GM. So when you worked, played for Cal Ripken, it was about work ethic. It was about coming to the ballpark and having a passion for getting better every day you came to the park. Well, what a world we'd have. What a country we would have if, if everybody did that. And it's not only in your workplace, but you know, uh, you know, part of being a baseball player and being 70 and being around people, you lose your best friends. But just think about if you could be a, best, a better friend every day or a better spouse or, um, you know, a better citizen. Uh, you know, I, so what I try to talk about in the book, I had so many role models. Um, if you're a baseball fan, when I got to the Orioles a year after Cal, I mean, the other things he kind of talked about that day was uh, perfect practice. In other words, we're going to be out here. Let's do things perfectly. There are no such things as shortcuts, Jack. Got to do your homework. No such things as shortcuts. And the other thing is, the only reason we're here is because of the people who come out to see us play. Now this is Aberdeen, South Dakota, A-ball. But that was what fueled 
playing a ball in Aberdeen, South Dakota, the fact that you have fans, that people expect you to have certain standards. Uh, you, you know, perhaps some of, I don't know if you have uh, Boys of Summer up there. No. One, okay, but Boys of Summer was written by Roger Kahn, and it was about the, the, the Dodgers, you know, Pee Wee Reese and Campanella and Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Gilhod. I mean, they, you know, they, they lost pretty much to the Yankees every <laughs> World Series. Because I was a Yankee fan, I could say that, except 55, right? So, but Roger Kahn once asked uh, uh, Branch Rickey in a hotel lobby, he goes, well, you know, Branch, if you're a baseball player, the, you know, the thing that really bothers you the most is if you're a third baseman, the bad hop that hits you in the face. Or if you're a pitcher, the line drive that comes back up the middle, or if you're a hitter, boy, the ball that, you know, the, the Noah Syndergaard ball that's, well, not thrown behind you, but thrown at your head, which is probably where he should have thrown it if he really wanted to do anything, or maybe hit him in the knee. And Branch Rickey said, no, 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 there's two things that are much worse. Uh, when you go to the ballpark and the people that see you play know you're not giving the rest. And the other thing, even greater than that, is that when you look in the mirror and you know you could be better. So all those things that I learned when I was 18 years old, Cal Ripken Sr., they're in this book. Now, they're illustrated because I had a chance to room with Robin Roberts when I got to the big leagues when I was 19. Robin was 38. He, end of his career, wanted to win 300 games. So he was with Baltimore. He mentored me. I mean, we talk about the mentor-mentee relationship. I was, you know, I, I was a mentor once I got experience to a lot of young pitchers. But um, I was kind of a mentee because I actually, I was in a bullpen with Harvey Haddix and Stu Miller and mm -hmm. Sherman Lawler. And, um, I mean, some of the, you know, Dick Hall, who went to Swarthmore, who was a brilliant guy that was a third baseman and learned how to pitch. He was 6'6", he threw the ball uphill, walked nine in his career. You know, he was my, he, he was my role model because he was the guy that worked the hardest. So, you know, you, you, you try to put all these things in, in, in perspective. Um, you know, I think the other thing in the book, there's a little missive, I don't know if, if you read the book, in each chapter. You know, um, I have a friend who uh, uh, is a hedge fund guy. Jack, I don't want you to listen to this, because um, it's a little harsh, but it's true. He talks about, um, that's Buck Showalter, I'll get to that in a second, but it's kind of interesting because Doug, uh, Doug Castle, you know, Seabreeze uh, uh, hedge fund, writes a little missive every day that I read. I mean, it's brilliant. He, he, his analogies are unbelievable. But he talks about, and I think it's kind of fitting, that the stock market, like baseball, has its ups and downs. Both games are nuanced. Mandate concentration and require mentors to elevate individuals to their highest potential. Kind of what went on with me. I had Robin Roberts. There's a tough love involved in the mentoring process. Um, I had Earl Weaver later on. Um, a mentor in a financial world will call you out for not being rigorous enough in your research, just as a good baseball man will make sure you practice your pitching or your hitting. My grandma Kopex, his, Doug Cass's grandma is Sandy Kopex's. Somehow they share the same grandma. Yes, that Kopex was painfully honest in her mentorship of me. When sharing her investment knowledge, her favorite phrase was, don't piss in my eye and tell me it's raining. <laughs> well, I had a lot of those people in my life, you know, pitching coaches, catchers. Tim McCarver talks about how when um, Bill Dickey came to scout, you know, and Timmy and I broadcast together. He played four decades, been a lot of great teams. Bill Dickey, who was a Hall of Fame Yankee catcher, said, you want to be a pitcher's best friend, but sometimes you've got to be tough love. You, you can't have all of them like you. So, you know, Doug Cass talks about that. You know, Buck Showalter, who broadcasted the team that I now, uh, you know, uh, broadcast for the, the Orioles and has been manager of the year uh, three times. You know, he writes uh, in this book about competitive, he, when he's looking at players, he said players are in a hurry to get to the big leagues, so sometimes they forget the basic things you have to do to be successful. We talk about them throughout the book, whether it's hard work, whether it's, um, you know, perseverance. Uh, you know, we have a psychologist that, we interviewed where she talks about if you're a broadcaster, a lot of times it's you know not that you're good looking or you have a great voice, it's that you have you have passion and that you have grit. I can't I can't tell you how many days the the, the things that Robin Roberts told me when I got later in my career when I was winning 20 games eight out of nine years when you got in the late innings and you're in Fenway Park and instead of handing the ball to the reliever which they do nowadays and I'm not saying it's a bad thing because the game has changed you got to get fist 
he has in Risa, three Hall of Famers. And it, it, you had to summon everything that you ever learned. You had to learn what my parents told me about being intelligent. You had to be able to slow the game down. You had to, you know, you had to know you were conditioned well enough. You, I mean, it, it tested every possible thing you could do as a pitcher, which is why I kind of, I'm a little bit sad that a lot of the pitchers, and there are some great guys out there. I mean, is there anybody better than Clayton Kershaw and people like that? But at the end of the day, you don't really get to totally learn about yourself until you have to be in the ninth inning of a ball game. Mm -hmm. And so while I understand how the game has gone and I'm not criticizing it, I just think that it made me a better person. It made me, people say, well, you know, you're a Hall of Fame you know, player. You don't have to go down on the field as a broadcaster and stay on there at 95 degree temperature. How am I going to be the best broadcaster I can be if I don't go down there, if I don't talk to the other team, if I don't go in the locker room and talk to the hitting instructor and the pitching coach and try to introduce myself to the players and, you know, tell them who I used to be. I mean, it's all part of the uh, relationship. So, you know, so the, so the book is, I mean, it's a compilation, you know, of, of, of guys. You know, Dennis Eckersley, he, there's a chapter on adversity. I tore my rotator cuff, thought my career was over when I was 21. Eck talks about the home run to Bob Gibson. I mean, to, uh, to uh, uh, Kirk, Kirk Gibson. And, how, you know, how his life could have changed if he let it bother him. But the next year, I did the World Series uh, in, in San Francisco and Oakland, the world, you know, the Earthquake World Series. He got the last save, save, saved all the games that needed to be saved. Fits another 12 years, ends up in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, what, I mean, it's kind of, I kind of talk about it briefly because it's not one of my memorable moments. But I pitched in the All-Star Game here in 77. And, you know, I had like 188 innings. It was 104 degrees that day. And Bob Fischel was the assistant to Lee McPhail, and he said, walked up to me during batting practice, and he said, we can't have what happened last year happen this year. And I said, what was that, Bob? I said, I didn't pitch in that game, and it was in Milwaukee, and I was there, but I, I didn't pitch. We can't have the, fit, the starting pitcher not ready when the game's going to start. So I need you on ready to pitch at 820. So I warmed up. Jeff Torbrook actually was warming me up. I came in at maybe 12 minutes after 8, and the game went on. I mean, they had parades and they had introductions. So I went out to the mound, uh, maybe like 20 to 9, hadn't thrown a ball in a half hour. Joe Morgan, who went in the Hall of Fame the year I went in, he leads off. I go 3 and 2, and I go, not going to walk him because he'll steal second, probably yeah. steal third. Yeah, I'm not going to let him embarrass me that way. It's a home run down the right field line. Not hit very hard, but, you know, old Yankee Stadium didn't have to be hit very far. I throw a backup slider to Greg Lisinski. He goes like this, hits it down the right field line. So now in the second inning, he actually threw a legitimate home run to Steve Garvey. I hung a slider and he hit it all over into the bullpen. So Billy Martin comes out and he goes, um, he said, how you doing? I said, how am I doing? I said, I just threw three home runs in about an inning and two thirds. And I said, um, what took you so long to get out of here? He goes, I didn't want to embarrass you. I said, Billy, leaving me out here embarrassed me. <laughs> so, so you know, and then it's kind of interesting because in the same vein as Dennis Eckersley, who throws the home run to Kirk Gibson, and, you know, and then comes back and ends up with 390 lifetime saves, 190 wins as a starter, uh, first first ballot Hall of Famer. My next game is against who is this? I used to pitch. Taylor. Taylor. <laughs> game of the week in Baltimore. Nothing to nothing. I go 11 innings. Nothing. He goes nine, I go 11. I get a no decision. But I felt so much better about myself because I, you know, who, who, it's pretty embarrassing. You'll find it out when you pitch, you pitch in an all-star game and you throw three home runs, Jack. You're not going to like it. My <laughs> best game, one of my best games was one, you know, again, you know, the next game that I pitched. Now, to be honest, probably 20 million people saw the all-star game and not that many people saw the game of the week. So, um, you know, so that you know, we talk about those kind of things. We talk, you know, we we talk about everything. My stepson's autistic now. We talk about special needs. You know, I if you have, I mean, my stepson's fabulous. When they did the statues at Camden Yards, I don't know if you've ever been down there, but I know you have, right? You've been back. They have the retired numbers Hall of Famers. Uh, 2012, Frank Robinson, 586 home runs. He was April. Brooks was supposed to be May, but he had some health issues. Um, Earl Weaver was June, I was July, Eddie Murray was August, you know, 3,000 hits, 500 home runs or more. 
only four guys have ever done that. We won't count Palmero, so it's actually three. Hank <laughs> uh, Aaron and Willie Mays. Um, and then Eddie Murray is, and or, uh, Callum, Callum Brooks in, in September. So uh, Spencer, you know, he's kind of up on the spectrum, photographic memory, um, but, you know, there's a social thing. He doesn't really want to look in the eye. He knows everything in the world about trains. So when he was eight, he started, you know, uh, we were lost in Irvine, California. He goes, go three blocks, make a left, go right, trying to find the Irvine spectrum. He's a little savant. So when the Orioles said they're going to actually do statues, my wife Susan said, Spencer, don't you think that you should, he calls me Jim Palmer, don't you think you should introduce Jim Palmer at, you know, at, at the ceremony? He goes, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So he goes out to the field, 40-some thousand people, the Tigers are in town, Al Kaline, Hall of Famer's there, you know, because he grew up in Baltimore, you know, he's been with the Tigers for about 60 years. He says, do you mind if I come to the ceremony? You're going to tell Al Kalin, no, you can't. You know, one of the great players that I ever played against. And Spencer runs out on the field, grabs a microphone. You know, it's like 40-some thousand people. Says, uh, let's hear it for number 22. Um, the, still the greatest, the most amazing. That's exactly what he told me to say. Jim Palmer. <laughs> so at least he got the script that I gave him right. But um, So, you know, we talk about that. It's actually, uh, Fire, uh, Roy Firestone, who, you know, is a dear friend, he used to be our bad boy, he wrote the, the introduction to this book. Uh, you know, he lived in Miami Beach, so when we trained in Miami, he, prime time, Dodgers, Yankees, uh, he wouldn't do the Senators. But he would come and be the bad boy, do a stand-up comedy. Uh, he actually did a little uh, video that you can go on YouTube and it's an interview with my wife and Spencer and myself, and I was out doing Angel Games two weeks ago. And it kind of talks about uh, autism, which you know affects out of, really one out of every 42 kids. So, you know, you know the autism awareness does a or autism speaks does a nice job, but autism awareness. And my wife does it in the video. People don't understand when you have a special needs kids, it's difficult. I'm not complaining because I look at other autistic kids. Ernie Els is you know one of the you know one of the great golfers of of the last couple of generations, and his son Ben is autistic, doesn't talk. So we, you know, we, if you're gonna have a son, I mean, Spencer's terrific, but I, I think as part of the awareness, we should really understand that maybe sensitivity and compassion, Gary Thorne, who I broadcast, used to do the Mets games, he kind of talks about that, how we can be nicer to people, reach out to people. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a multifaceted book. There are a lot of baseball stories. Um, I learned a lot of life lessons, you know, from, Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson. And, you know, I ended my Hall of Fame speech and somebody from Forbes magazine when I did an interview said, well, you ended your, your speech about Lenny Cicada. Now, you have to be a kind of a baseball fan to know who Lenny Cicada was. He was a utility infielder who, in the year we won the World Series, the last time the Orioles won a World Series, 1983, caught one time. And it was in the 10th inning of a ball game. Um, Rick Dempsey and Joe Nolan were our catchers. They pinch hit with Joe for Rick. He had bad knees. They pinch ran with Lenny. And in the 10th inning, for the first time ever, he was going to become a catcher. So Lenny was about 5'6". Tim Stoddard was 6'8 on the mound. He played for the NCAA North Carolina undefeated team with David Thompson. So Lenny, it looked like Lenny was standing up. So he puts the, puts the one finger down. And the first pitch is a home run over the left field wall by Cliff Johnson. He used to play with the Yankees, but he's playing for Toronto. So they take, they can't relieve Lenny, they take Tim out, they bring in Tippy Martinez, who was a terrific left-handed pitcher who we had actually acquired in a trade from the Yankees. And the first guy gets on, Tippy picks him off. Second guy gets on, because they want to steal second base off the Lenny Cicada, he picks him off, third guy gets on, picks him off. <laughs> Tippy didn't even have a good pickoff move. They were so anxious to run <laughs> on Lenny Cicada. So Cal Ripken comes in in the, uh, in the top of the, the bottom of the 10th inning, it's a home run to tie. And guess who hits a walk-off home run? Lenny Sica. Oh. So, you know, he's in the book. He's in my hall. You know, because that's, that's kind of what the Orioles were about. You know, Earl used to, Earl Weaver used to always talk about how we're going to take the, the, the best 25 guys. And, uh, you know, if we play together and if we play as one and, you know, we have shared interests, which was obviously trying to win, and we're good teammates, all the thing I learned from Cal, we have a good chance to win. And we did. And that affects every company. Uh, there, you, we had 420 game winners. 
I wanted to be as good as my choir and Dave McNally and Pat Dobson, but I didn't want them to fail. And it kind of, kind of led to a, you know, a, a competitive, who could be the best? And we all won 20. Um, you know, we won 100, well, actually we won only 101 games that year because we had won 109, 108. So when people say, what was the year the Orioles had four 20 game winners? Everybody goes, oh, it had to be 69 or 70 because they won 109, 108 games. It was actually the next year. We only had three 20 game winners in, in, uh, in 1970. So uh, I don't know, what, anything else you uh, should be? Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's was that monologue? Was that monologue? <laughs> no, no, no. Now, now we're going to get to the uh, questions. Oh, that, yeah. that was fantastic, but I think you should get the first question. Um, this better said, be good, Jeff. Yeah. You said that. He does, nothing phases <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. You said that you signed with the Orioles in the year before the draft. What would it, you think it would be like if it was different if you were being drafted? Do you well, think that you would have been drafted by the Orioles? Well, it, the draft is dictated on where you finish. Yeah. So the Orioles, let's see, in 1962, I can't, well, 1962, Yankees, okay, Giants. So the Yankees would have drafted, they would have been at the bottom. The Orioles, the Orioles were in the pennant race in 60 and 64 because they had great pennant races. So back then you have to understand there was only 16 teams. So the Orioles probably would have probably drafted they probably would have been in the, the top of the draft, not the not the good part. The top, I mean, the top. Like, if you had 60 teams, they would have probably drafted 12 or 13. You know, it's kind of interesting because I had a lot of teams that told me when anybody could assign me. They really, you know, I was 10 and 0. I pitched a lot of no hitters. I was the best hitter until I got astigmatism. Led state scoring in basketball. I caught 65 passes, ran back kickoffs. I was a really good athlete, and they all said, "Oh, you know, they, from when I was a freshman." You know, we're going to be there. And I, you know, I, I, when I got out of high school, Bobby Winkles was the coach at ASU. He would go on to coach and manage the, the Angels. And he said, you're going to waste your time playing American Legion ball. You need to go to a college league. I said, but I'm in high school. He said, well, you're going to go up with some of our players at Arizona State. Jim Longboard was on the team. He was coming from Stanford. Bobby Floyd played UCLA shortstop. He played shortstop, and then I pitched my no-hitter. Carl Morton would pitch with the Montreal team. Dave uh, Campbell played in that league. Ken Suez ruined my no perfect game in the ninth. He played for Valentine, Nebraska. So there were a lot of major league teams. So I went up there, and when I came back, we rushed back, because if you were ever in winter South Dakota for two months, really nice people, but there wasn't a whole lot to do. So we got the money and then drove all night. Actually had a car accident on, in, in Four Corners. Louis Adrenas was riding my dad's Corvair that he had loaned me for the summer, no seatbelts. And I woke up, Bobby Vinton was playing Blue Velvet, and we're on the wrong side of the road. And he had, Louis had been, he'd been sleeping and whatever, so I go to grab the wheel off the highway, flip it three times. Skip Hancock, who would sign with the Dodgers for $72,000, was behind us. We jumped in his car. They took our stuff to the nearest uh, gas station, sent it back to Phoenix, where we were going on Greyhound bus. Paul Richards in Houston came at like five o'clock, left two telegrams, said send in the one without the college scholarship or with it. And the Orioles came in and my parents fell in love with them. Now the next day, 10 other teams called. So I probably would have gotten more money. So I probably, probably would have been, I would have thought maybe, maybe the 10th player drafted. And, but it worked out pretty good, Jack. Because I got to play in six World Series and a bunch of All-Star games. Yes. Jim, the Orioles had a great tradition of pitching from 1960 through the early 80s. Maybe the best tradition in baseball, in my opinion. Um, started with the Baby Birds in, in 60. Was Paul Richards the developer that did, did it start with his philosophies of pitching? Well, I think it initially started. Um, you know, Dean Chance was actually in the 60 draft, went to the Angels. The Orioles let Dean Chance go. Four years later, he pitched 12 shutouts on the American League Cy Young. Yeah. Because we had better pitchers. Or we had guys we thought were going to be better. We had a guy named Steve, Steve Valkowski, 5'9", knocked the guy's ear off, threw the ball through the backstop, 
Cal Ripken caught a ball. If the ball didn't start at your ankles, it had to start that low. It had this little five moon face, drank a lot, big, big glasses. If the ball didn't, and Cal caught him and coming up through the minors before he hurt his shoulder, Cal seen him. The ball was going to be letter high. He never ever failed to walk 200 guys, and he never struck out. He, you know, he always struck out more than he walked. So he had a little command problems. Arnie Thorsland, Cal caught in, in the rookie league, he struck out 24 out of 27. Arm position right here. Ball ended up behind the hitter. Paul Richards can't have a good breaking ball from there. Who cares? He struck out 24 out of 27. Moved his arm up. Never pitched well again. So Paul probably had a lot of good things, but Paul was a weird dude. Now, you know, I mean, he, uh, if we, the three of us were right here on the bench, and this was, uh, this was Paul Richards, and, and I, he wanted me to go warm up, he, and Harry Prakeem was right over here, he'd go, Harry, go tell Palmer, wouldn't even look, go tell Palmer to go warm up. He always did, through. he was a little strange. You know, he never lost at golf because he never stopped playing. You know, one of those kind of guys. But he wanted me to come to Houston. And I always, you know, we had Larry, they would have had Larry Durker, you would have had J.R. Richards. They would have had some pretty good arms. But I played with, I mean, I played with Frank Robinson. I played with Brooks Robinson. I played with Boo Powell. I mean, Paul Blair with eight gold gloves and Belanger and Aparicio when it came up, you know, the World Series year, the first World Series. You know, Davey Johnson, Bobby Grinch, uh, you know, Cuellar, McNally, you know, whatever. Uh, Saw Stu Miller, the greatest changeup. As good as Mariano is, and my, you know, my wife loves Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera. When they had the last All-Star game, anybody go to it? They had a parade down, you know, Sixth Avenue. You know, the Hall of Fame players, and then the guys who were playing the, the All-Star game. Now, my stepson Spencer, we call him Indy because he thinks he's Indiana Jones, and you know, Indy loves french fries because of the autism he only eats certain things every time we see a mcdonald's spencer wanted to jump off jump off the, the truck and i'm on one side and earl weaver's on the other side so we get up uh up to the uh, up to right right past the plaza now the previous uh, spring a friend of mine said we well, come over to tampa bay uh to tampa where the yankees train and speak at a dinner and i said you know you know charity thing i said sure um he said Derek jeter might be and I go, come on, Derek Jeter's not coming to your dinner. Oh no, he's gonna be there. So we fly over, it's like a half hour ride from Palm Beach. And first thing my wife says to Laser, he goes, is Derek coming? Well, we've been trying to reach uh, Derek and we don't. So we stop for lunch. So as we're, we're, as we're walking uh, out of the restaurant after lunch, uh, Gerald Williams and Derek come walking in because they're professional buddies. Yeah. And you know, one thing about Derek Jeter, um, you know, fabulous career, is obviously going to be in the Hall of Fame. Don Zimmer kind of taught him how to play the game right. You know, he, he's made by Robin Roberts, Joe Torre, you know, class guy, great baseball player. People don't realize how good a player Joe was. So he was always respectful. So, you know, we kind of shake hands and the shoulder bump. And, and I said, um, only a couple of women here, but I said, I'd like you to meet my wife, uh, Susan. And Derek, come on, Jack. Derek goes, nice to meet you. And we start talking, and then we walk out in the parking lot, and my wife looks at me, and she said, you know, Derek, I held my hand. <laughs> I go, I think he actually just shook hands with you. No, no. And this is not the first woman ever thought that. She said, no, no, he held my hand. The Yankees open. The Yankees open in Baltimore. So, um, you know, so now, my wife says, I'm not coming to opening day, there's too many people. You know, second day, you know, we're not like Cleveland where you had, used to have 77,000, 2,900. <laughs> but you know, we'd have maybe 20,000 versus being sold out 45,000. So she comes early and I said, why are you doing that? She said, well, because Derek's gonna see me because I'll come to the ballpark early and you're gonna tell him I'm over in the stands and then he's gonna wave and everybody's gonna like me, you know, and they're gonna wonder how I know Derek Jeter. So, I'm up at the cage and I said, you know, you know, Derek, thanks so much for holding my wife's hand. And he goes, what are you talking about? He goes, I shook her hands. I said, Derek, she thinks. And I'd be the first woman that ever thought this. And you know, Giambi, because Giambi's playing with the Yankees at the time, they're all laughing. I said, no, no, she thinks she held her hand. That's, that's all that matters. So I said, 
she's over there, she's a good looking blonde, just, you know, give her, give her away. Derek say, hey, how you doing? All that. So now people are coming in and I get Mariano to actually go over because other than Derek, you know, Mariano was her favorite player. I mean, probably because we're in the playoffs every year. And you know, she's, yeah, my, my, you know, whatever. So he actually comes all the way across the field and actually talks to her. So let's fast forward to the parade. We get to the plaza. Um, my wife doesn't even, she's not shaking hands with Terry. She just goes up and just, <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. And, uh, and right behind her was Jennifer Eckersley. So, uh, you know, so why, what was the face of the story? I don't even remember why. <laughs> Paul Richards. Oh, Paul Richards. But anyway, so, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, the, the pitching staffs, you know, I think George Bamberger changed everything because when I came to the big leagues, and we did have a lot of arm injuries, you never, you ever, never threw except when you um, threw on the mound. When Bambi came, we ran as a team, which I did for Cal in Aberdeen. You know, all, everybody ran. If Cuellar pitched one hitter once, and George goes, where's Mike? He always hips bother him. He goes, he's, he's from Staten Island. I can't tell the exact <laughs> language he used, but he goes, stay there, boys. I'll be back. <laughs> he grabs Quay, goes in the locker room. Grabs quite because your hip doesn't hurt that bad. You just pitched a one hitter. When we run, we all run. And that's, so George did that. He made us play catch. Uh, he was a, not a mechanic guy about good location. You know, when I played at A ball, I walked 130 and 129 innings. And I had a good chance to go to the big leagues the next year because they kind of had to protect me. So I went to the instructional league and Bambi, George talked. I mean, kind of a, not a new windup, but a more balanced, balanced windup and taught me to throw the ball down and away. To a right-handed hitter, because you got to load, you know, you got to stay on your backside, you got to extend, get your arm out, and it, it, number one, it gives you better delivery, it gives you better location, and you also you usually don't get hurt. So I think really George kind of turned what went on in, in Baltimore, and he was a fabulous guy. Fifteen years in the Pacific Coast League, finally makes the Giants, and hurts his shoulder, and he became a great pitching coach. And we all know we need coaches in life. So did yes. you adjust your? Great motion. I mean, you don't see that motion anymore like yours. Well, Al Leiter said that on MLB today. He said, you don't see it. I said, well, you had it. I said, oh, yeah, you're retired, too. Um, After your injury, did you have to adjust it? Not really, no. Well, I hurt, you know, I hurt the bicep tendon. All it does is externally and intern, internally <coughs> rotate your arm, which is kind of how you throw a baseball. So when I had, and Robert Curlin, you know, Curlin Job, you know, Job was Tommy John. He took a little needle. He says, you're about to be cured. I, he said, put your hands up. I said, what? He goes, open up your hand. It opens up that groove. Because if your arm's like this, it's, so they kept injecting my shoulder. All they would have had to do is open it up. There's so little you can feel it right there. He took a little needle, made the tendon, day and a half my arm was. But I favored it, slinging the ball, because you know I was making $15,000 and cut my salary, and I had a child and a house and whatever. So, and you know, the disabled list for me back then, and I write about in the book, was Elmira, Miami, Rochester. <laughs> they didn't, if I couldn't pitch, they asked George once, and I said he's a great guy. How do you deal with arm injuries? We send them to Rochester, which is a facility. So, yeah, uh, Mark Trumbo, we, ha we have him this year. He goes, what did you guys do about, you know, ligament problems in your elbow? You, I said, you had a bad elbow. And you know, either you got well or you went home and came up with a new job. That was kind of the way it was. Yes? Uh, Keith Hernandez uh, gave his expense, uh, they won 108 games, and they had the potential to, you know, to have a run of two or three straight championships. And he told me, in a book that I just did with the 86 bets, that it still sticks in his craw today, that they're considered an underachieving team for as great as they were. You mentioned Dennis Eckers leaving before. He was on an 88, 89, 90 team that was very similar to what you had in 69, 70, 71. Clearly the best team in baseball, but one world championship in the middle. In 71, you'd won like 15 straight games going into game three against Steve Glass. Um, well, actually, Roberto Clemente. Glass <laughs> 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 mm. did beat us two to one, but Clemente was the MVP with 13 <laughs> hits. Because people say, you know, I'm not pitched against me, it's my first All-Star game. I, I thought I was going to go to Cincinnati and actually have a good time. And Weaver, that's when I knew he hated me. Number one, he said I was going to be the next 30-game winner. 
I just come back from the arm injury. I was 16 and four. I would go on and win 20 games eight of the next nine years. But that was some pressure. And then I looked at the lineup. Willie Mays let off and Rose. I mean, Dick Allen was like hitting seventh. But you know, the, the point is, if you go look at all those teams, the, the Mets had some off the field problems. Doc Gooden went from being 24 and four. You know, we, we lost to a pretty good pirate team with Clemente. Um, and I always think, you know, I mean, 109, 108, 101 wins. If we win that, we would have been considered one of the great teams. I guess the question would be if, you know, do you consider the, the, the Oakland A team, 72, 73, 74, that did win three world championships, one of the great teams? And they probably get a lot of votes. Well, I mean, they're not the Yankees. I mean, my first manager was Hank Bauer. He played on five straight winning games with the Yanks. Well, what I would, I, the question was going to be, you know, it still bothers Keith today. Now, you're in the Hall of Fame, and you won three world championships with, with the Orioles, a slew of, of uh, pennants. Does something like that, you know, looking back at your great career, do you think about, you know, if, if the Orioles had won those three straight in the pantheon of baseball history, I mean, that would have gone down as one of the greatest teams of all time. And, and it, it should have worked out that way. Do you ever look back on it now uh, we're not really. No, you know, I mean, I, I, it's kind of like what it, you know when X does Eck does his little missive about you really have to move on. I will say this: when we lost to the Mets, um, you know, in 1969, which made a lot of Mets fans happy. The next spring, uh, one of the, I think one of the better stories. We go to Mexico City, and we we're five and two, and you know we only played seven games. We thought it was why are we doing this? You know, we mm -hmm. played down there Friday night, Saturday night left after a night game on, on Saturday, or Thursday, flew to Mexico City, didn't even have a chance to wash the, the uniforms. And Pete Record is a left-handed pitcher we got from the Senators. He's one of our relievers. He throws a, we have a seven to five lead and he throws a three run home run when we lose eight to seven. And Earl Weaver ends up in the Hall of Fame as a manager. Remember the book, The Ugly American? He played it to a hill. He's throwing <laughs> bottles and Cussing and the, the Mexican writers don't know what's going on. You know, the ugly American is wearing an Oriole uniform. And the theory was we went 19 and 5 in spring training the year we lost to the Mets and then won 109 games. You, you, the, what, the Belmont's coming up next weekend or this weekend? Uh, next, next weekend, right? Yeah. Earl's taking spring training like he's coming down the stretch at the, at, at the Preakness. He said, we've, you know, so he has a meeting. We, we're in Mexico. It was Rickard's fault. We've already lost 60% of all the games we lost last spring. You know, so we won the next two. We won 108 games and beat the, the Reds. But, um, you know, it didn't really change. Sure. You know, it's funny. You, the great thing, I, what I think about baseball, um, you know, nowadays we didn't, you know, Earl, Earl managed from the All-Star game in 68 to 1980. All one-year deals. And I talk about in the okay. book, and I talked about this, I guess, on some of the shows, is that every fourth day, Earl's job security uh, had a lot to do with it. And, you know, in anything you do, you have to have a certain trust factor. And he trusted me that I, that I was going to be prepared and that I was going to have passion and that I wanted to do well. And, um, you know, I mean, that's why I'm in the Hall of Fame. I mean, we didn't get along. He wanted me to be perfect. I think in trying to be perfect that I got to be pretty darn good. But I think I probably would have tried that anyway. Somebody asked me today if, if he hadn't have been so tough on you, if he had come out and you know, he never shook your hand. He goes, what am I gonna do when you lose? <laughs> and I go, well, you'll, you'll say get him next time. You know, I did the last game in 1987 when Tanana beat uh, Jimmy Key, one nothing. The Tigers won and Toronto lost the last week. And one nothing ball game. Sparky Anderson ran up, jumped up on Tanana and hugged him. And I'm sitting up in the booth with Al Michaels and Tim McCarver. And I go, what if Weaver did that? Oh, he couldn't have. He's too short. Uh, so, so anyway, um, no, you know, I don't think you, you, I think you move on. And the great thing about pitching, we have any restaurant people here? Anybody own a restaurant? Everybody, anybody ever own a restaurant? We all like to eat, right? <laughs> if we go to a good restaurant, if we like a restaurant so much, we're going to go there two nights in a row. Like if you're in Baltimore and you're going to go to Domingo's, the best Italian restaurant in Little Italy, 
and they have a good meal on Friday and they're horrible on Saturday, are you going back? That's the way I always look at baseball. You know, they take away the wins. You know, I, all those years I won 20 games, I'd start the next year, I was 0-0. Huh. I, you know, I, Davey Johnson, who we all know, you know, you maybe write the book. First and third, they throw through. Davey comes in, and Davey, when he came up, was a shortstop. You know, he didn't work on his throwing when he became second. Maybe he gives me one of those little flip throws. Bobby Gritch would have caught it and knocked the catcher over. And I give up a run, and I'm waiting on the bench. And I go, that was a run. I said, I don't like to give up runs. That's, I, I, you know, I was a little obsessed, but, but I think people that care about something, I mean, you can relax. They did a psychological study. They used Bobby Grish and myself. And you know, when he got to the part, you know, highly motivated, always under control. Well, you know, when you had to do the questionnaire, is the manager always right? I go, absolutely not. Uh, you know, because he's not. Uh, but totally uncoachable. And I thought that was great for a Hall of Famer, or a guy that was heading for the Hall of Fame. So uh, I think you just move on. Um, boy, you know, it would have been nice to have a couple more um, World Series ring. But I actually thought that getting to the World Series, even though you like to win, um, you've done a lot of things right. Yes, sorry to keep you in. I need a, I'm going to take off if you don't like my question. One of the things that I always thought about, because I remember having a coach in high school who was the most despicable person I've ever met. And he was just You know, it's funny, I mean, Dave McNally won 20 games four times. <clears throat> Earl would, I mean, I told some stories today over, not on the air, because, you know, every, when Earl was a broadcaster, they didn't have a seven second <laughs> the, delay. By the time he, he was able to not say something profane, we're in the next inning, you know, or whatever. But um, we had, what we had in common, I didn't care whether he liked me or not. He didn't care whether I, I liked him. Actually, and I talk about this in the book, he was a better manager if I didn't like him. Because I think he really felt, he was very loyal. You know, I mean, you know, when we trade Frank Robinson after the great three years in a row, um, I out hit most of the guys. I mean, his last year I had seven game winning hits. We had the four 20 game winners. I won 20 games. Cuellar won 16. McNally pitched better. Dobson pitched better. We did him scoring runs. And Buford went from being the best leadoff guy in baseball, 69-7-71, hitting 209. Merv Redman, he, you know, he had hit 300 two years in a row. Earl told him to stand on the plate. He was off the plate. Stand on the plate and be like Frank Robinson. I out hit him. I out hit Terry Crowley. <laughs> and Earl was, you know, Earl was miserable, but he would make out the lineup, and Buford wouldn't be in it. By the time he got to the ballpark, Buford was leading off because he was loyal. But he didn't like that. He didn't like it because it affected his ability to manage when I tell the story, when we lost the last game of 82, it was the last game ever for Earl, before he came back when I was already gone. And now I was doing the playoffs because I broadcast from 78, did the, the one game playoff, you know, with the Yankees. And now we're going to California to do the, the, um, the Angels in Milwaukee. And we, you know, Angels win the first two, Milwaukee wins three out of five. Milwaukee wins on Friday, and we're in Milwaukee. So Dennis Lewin on Saturday says, you know, we're going to go to dinner. I took Earl to dinner last night. Do you mind if he comes? And I go, no, I'd be happy if he would go. And Earl looked at Dennis Lewin, our producer, and said, why don't you ask Jim if he really wants me to come? And I go, I have no problem. Earl changed four days after he stopped managing. We used to always play golf. We, I mean, I got some great golf stories. He never liked to lose. You know, until he joined the country club, he, he wouldn't, take, wouldn't take shots or strokes because he wanted to beat you. You know, he was a little feisty guy, but he was impossible. <laughs> but he was, you know, he, he, was one, he came up with the Weaver stats, you know, kind of knew. He knew what the numbers were. He just didn't remember exactly when they happened. I could. I mean, I pitch a game <laughs> up here. He brings me two outs in the ninth. I got a four to one lead. I'm about 36. Winfield gets an infield hit, and he's, he comes out, and he says, I'm bringing in Martinez. And I go, fine with me. Now, he says because he's two for 21. And I said, well, actually, he's two for two. He was 0 for 19. 
He beat us early in the year on a good curveball when he was well rested over shortstop because Nettles looks for the curveball. He's a smart hitter. And then when you brought him in after five straight games, and I pointed, I said, he took in the 12th inning, he, he, he hit it in the upper deck because you weren't watching Tippy's curveball meandering up to home plate. And I told you that night you should walk him. So, but I said, fine with me. Well, he went crazy. <laughs> he said, you pointed to the upper deck. And I said, well, you're trying to tell me numbers that, yeah, he's two for 21, but he's really two for two. And, and you got to really, but Earl did that. And then when we, we played the Yankees and when they were redoing Yankee Stadium, so we were over at Shea. We had a guy that came in the Frank Robinson trip, Royal Stillman, Royal Alexander, Bobby Bonner, and somebody you never heard of, Sergio Robles. He was a catcher. Just throw it. You know, I won't put a sign down. Throw anything you want. I go, what? But anyway, Earl on the road, and they changed the rules for a Weaver. On the road, Earl would start. Royal Stillman was an outfielder. He would lead off the game playing shortstop, even though he wasn't a shortstop, because the rules said you didn't have to assume a defensive stance. So we'd actually lead off the game with a pinch hitter. And they changed the rules because Earl had outfought everybody. Where if you bat, you have to go to the position. And we didn't want us to have a left-handed throwing shortstop. So that's, so we're, but I, I didn't like the way Earl treated people, but you knew exactly where you were. And you know, I think that's important. I mean, do you want somebody, you know, there's a story about Mike Flanagan when he's three and eight. I mean, to me, it's one of the greatest stories because you know, Flanagan committed suicide, which is a tragic thing. I, I, you know, I, I, people keep asking me, did you have any inkling? I said, we had an inkling we would have tried to do something. But Mike was three and eight, and we're going up to Boston. I'll make this quick. And I, Earl sat in first class, and Mike and I sat in the first row of bulkhead. I'd always have the, the window seat, and Mike smoked, so I'd get all the, get all, I didn't smoke, so I'd get all the blowers, I'd be blowing it over across the aisle. And he's pitching well, but he's three and eight. And he goes, you know, I'm used to Joe Altabelli at AAA. Joe's a nice, soft-spoken guy. Puts his arm around me, and I go, ah, ah. <laughs> you're not getting that from Earl Weaver. Number one, he's not tall enough to get his arm around you. <laughs> so I said, you know, you're getting a pitch every fourth day. So we go to Boston, and I don't know if it was Earl, but the bathroom is right across from the manager's office. So I'm going to go to the bathroom, and Earl comes in, and he's standing at the urinal next to me. And I looked at him, and I said, I said, you know, I sit, you don't know this because you never come out of first class, but I sit with Flanagan in the bulkhead. And I said, we were talking last night, and, you know, I know he's not pitching. See, his, pitch, his record's not as bad as it should be as bad as it is because he's pitching better. But I said, you know, he's used to Joe Olivelli, and I, you know, and I told him, I said, you know, he's used to a soft spoken guy, and, and uh, I, you, know, you know, you don't really like him. He goes, like him. Um, <laughs> I'm putting his name in the lineup every four days, and is uh, three and eight. And I looked at him and I said, "Are you continuing to do it?" He goes, "Well, yeah, I don't have anybody else." And I said, "Call him into your office. I don't care if you lie to him." So Earl does one thing better. He goes to the Boston Globe. Mike grew up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Always read the Globe. You know, probably grew up with that in the Union Leader. Cliff Keen wrote it, he goes to Cliff Keen, he says, I don't care what his, what his record is, Mike Flanagan is gonna be a winning pitcher in the big leagues. He goes 13 and two after he read that article. 13 and two. You know how hard it is when you're three and eight to be able to focus on the next game? Because you're thinking, well, I gotta win five in a row. You don't win five in a row, which goes back to my point. If you take everything away from you, that's constantly makes you, that's what I love. I, you know, I, I didn't get a long-term deal till I probably pitch in the big leagues 11 or 12 years. So, Earl and I. You didn't like him. Huh? I did. I loved him. We won. I got a World Series share. He gave me the ball every four days. Did I like the way he acted? But I'm not sure he really liked the way I acted sometimes. <laughs> I think we have time for one last question. Why didn't I broadcast that day you came to Baltimore? No, I'm sorry. I don't know. You know, you talked about life lessons, and you mentioned the gentleman's name earlier. 
what were the life lessons he showed you on that field in 71? And then you hear, sadly, tragic life passes so much about what the person was in human Well, being. you know, I'm looking on my phone the other day, and uh, you probably, I, I don't know the name of the site now. It's, uh, it's a baseball site that players write in. Players Tribute. Players Tribute. Well, Beltron, who's from Puerto yeah, Rico. Did you? Okay. Well, kind of. I mean, you probably could do it better than me. I'm, so I'm just kind of, I mean, I'm going from trying to get around the city, which is 98, <coughs> you all know, uh, doing stuff. And, I'm, and, you know, he said in, in uh, Puerto Rico they teach you, and, and it, you know, I went to Puerto Rico and played for, in Santurce for Franken and resurrected my career. My arm got well, won 6-0, and oh, no hitter. So I love Puerto Rico. Used to have 24,000 in Hiram Bethlehem Stadium, 12,000 for San Juan, 12,000 for Santurce. Both played in the same city. They wouldn't throw bad stuff. They'd throw paper cups and all that. And, you know, you had major league teams. And, you know, uh, we had an all-star team. Uh, you know, George Scott and Joe Foy and, you know, all, you know, Paul Bear played the outfield. So baseball was huge in Puerto Rico. And, you know, I just talked to Korea and, and um, uh, Lindora, and they're both from Puerto Rico. And they go, it's not the same. But they, Beltran was talking about, you, you know, you learn, you know, English and Spanish and grammar and all that and history. And part of the history is the culture of Roberto Clemente. You know, we all know how important Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson was because some of the greatest players are African Americans. If you read the book Clemente, they had to go through similar things yeah. because you didn't just have to be black. And I mean, I remember going to Thomasville, Georgia when I was 18, my first year, and John, John Matias hit 405 in rookie league. Did he win the batting title? No, because Tony Oliva played in, league in Cuba at 409. Davey May at 398. Did he win a batting title? No. So we take John Matias and his twin brother, Bobby, and try to go get haircuts in Thomasville, Georgia, about 45 mile, miles north of Tallahassee. We go in there and they go, can't cut their hair, they're black. And I said, no, they're not black, they're brown. They're from Hawaii. Ever been to Hawaii? I mean, I'm talking to some cracker. I go, ever been to Hawaii? Great place to go. You can surf, get a tan. So we almost talked him into it, but we had to go to the other side, the other side of the town to do, you know, to, to get haircuts. When we went to Kansas City in 1965, my rookie year, we stayed in Kansas because they wouldn't allow black players or African-American players to, to stay at the Mule Block Hotel. It was, and I can't imagine actually being, you know, Hispanic or, or, or being Jackie Robinson. So. Clemente could do everything. Everybody asked me. You know, I played pitch against, you know, Aaron at the end of his career, Mays and all that. Marvelous players. Dusty Baker will tell you, the guy that taught him all about baseball was Hank Aaron, because we think home runs when we think Hank Aaron, you know, 755 home runs. He, he had 3,700 hits, and he could throw, and he could run, and, you know, he's the, the nicest guy in the world. But Clemente played in Pittsburgh and could do all of those things. Um, and. I could pitch, well, I mean, I think I could have pitched the maze, but when we went over the, Clay Dalrymple, Clay Dalrymple was one of our catchers who came over from the National League, and we were going over the, the scouting report in 71, they go, well, you can throw him a curveball, just don't do it twice. And I'm thinking, geez, it's gonna be hard. You can go in, but don't stay there, you know? <laughs> well, he had every pitch thrown in that series. I mean, he had a triple off me, a home run off me. Um, I actually won. Well, what did I do? I, I had a no decision and a, and a win. So I didn't pitch poorly, but you, um, I didn't like guys like <laughs> And, you know, in the, um, it would have been the 71 All-Star game, the game in Detroit where Reggie hit the transformer. Everybody that hit a home run in that game is in the Hall of Fame. Killebrew, Bench. I mean, you go down the list, Frank Robinson. I still, I mean, this is how sick I am. Mickey Lolich came in probably the seventh inning. And Tiger Stadium, you had the overhanging right, 365 to the left, a lot of room in center if you could get him to hit it to the 445 side. But the overhang came and, you know, so that, I don't know what it was, 340 was actually shorter because of the overhanging right field. Mickey Lowe throws Roberto a, a curveball and he kind of gets out here, but the ball's up and he hits it over the 415 sign. He didn't do steroids and girls. <laughs> over the 415 sign in right center field. And I'm on the bench and I'm going, how did he do that? You know, I mean, Killebrew hit a home run. Killebrew hit the home runs. He looked at him because he hit him so far. He wasn't showing anybody up. I mean, all right. 
you know, or whatever. But Clemente hit the ball, and then we had to play him in the World Series. So we should have known. But he was a marvelous player. And, you know, again, I mean, statues all over Puerto Rico. I mean, he, you know, he, he, uh, he played the game the right way. And I never wore a pitching cup, you know, a protecting cup. He almost hit me in the in the groin when I was 19 years old. So I remember him for that too. <laughs> I love that. Boom, boom. Thank you. <laughs> well, because of the uh, time constraints of the podcast, we're going to have to podcast. wrap this up. I uh, I don't know if it's, it was a Tommy Dorsey tune or not. I could dance all night, but we could definitely listen to you all night. And again, uh, everyone here is fortunate enough to have this book. If you're listening. Please get it. It's fantastic. Nine Innings to Success, published by Triumph Books, written by the Hall of Famer Jim Palmer. And Thank Alabama. you so much. And Alabama. Alabama. Alabama.